Good morning. I've always said if all of Three Rivers ever shows up on the same Sunday, we blow this place open. But being the a younger type generation, we have a lot of folks who have to be gone at certain times, and so you come in some mornings. And I say this to say, I think what's amazing about this this fellowship is um, there's a fair amount of urban legend that's not legend. And uh, I get the privilege of hearing that in global circles, and uh, you are known globally. And what makes you known is not you, but the glory of Jesus to use what others would not put on a stage at a conference on how you ought to do it to make his name big. That's how he works in his kingdom. And what I find interesting is they never have at church conferences guys who pastor small churches to talk. Because in the American concept of success, this is failure. We still hear the stupid things people say like, are you guys a real church yet? And you know, you guys, you've heard me say that before. And I just, I've gotten to where it doesn't make me angry anymore. It just, I kind of laugh. Um... Because Jesus likes to take what others view as failure and make his name big globally. You are known globally. There's legend that floats around agencies who do the kind of work globally about, that's just church in Rome. It's three rivers. And, man, I don't know what they do. And they, and they, they will write and email me periodically. And they'll ask questions. When I tell them how big we are, they bl- it blows their mind. Some of those guys got to come and worship with us last week after Pan. And they're like... I don't get it. And I'm like, I don't either. It's Jesus. And so on Sundays like this, when people are traveling and not a lot of folks here, I look out here and go, this is exactly how Jesus operates. It's exactly how he operates. And, and, and that fires me up. So there were days I used to come in on Sundays and you look, and you're like, God, you work your rear end off and you, and nobody's here. And then the Lord's like, but that's how I work. That's how I work. He takes little things and he makes his name big with them so we can't get any credit for it. And uh, that's actually pretty cool. So, how fun. It's awesome. And I trust that God has you here for his good purposes to achieve good things today. And and I believe that we're going to see some of those things in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Uh, just so you're familiar with the inner workings of my thinking this morning, I want to tell you that this morning's message is one gigantic introduction to Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. So as I started writing this week and praying and translating and exegeting the text, um, I discovered that I'm five or six pages in and realized I'm just in the introduction. And I thought, well, just keep it to that. Just keep it to that. So so that you're familiar with where we're going this morning. We'll actually deal with the exposition of the text next week. But with so much going off in my soul after Pan and with so much being dealt with in this text, this introduction is as long as a typical sermon. So there, so you know kind of where we're going. It's like, he's not out of the introduction yet. We won't be. So we'll get to the end and that will, that will be the end of the introduction. So... So you know, as we studied Ephesians, we remember what we learned in 1 Timothy three fourteen to 15 is the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the elected gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son goes to the cross to secure that church through His suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. The church is not... A throwaway Sunday activity that has no significance. The church is not a manifestation of a savvy business plan. Or a superior crafted strategy. And the church is not a cheap gimmick to attract unsuspecting stragglers. The church is the community of the kingdom of God. Through whom the Father is making what we learn in Ephesians 3.10, which we will learn. And you've heard me say this as we've talked about our status of being in Christ. The church is the community of kingdom of God. He is, through the church, making His manifold wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
There is more going on in you than you realize. There's more going on this morning than what you see with your eyes. Get that. The church is, despite appearances sometimes, the precious and loved bride of Christ. That He is washing and cleaning with the water of the Word. That He can present the church to Himself without spot or blemish. And He gave us marriage in Ephesians 5 to reflect that in culture. It's how precious the church is. You you feeling that? And that's good. That's a weight of glory that's amazing. And since we're a real church, not a fake church, since we are a real church, it is necessary that we study what the Scriptures say about the church, what the Scriptures say about the church's leaders and its leadership, what we discover in the Word about the church's function and its position of being in Christ. And this is exactly what we've been doing. We studied First Timothy, and we learned about our function, and we learned the precepts that guide the church's function. And since Timothy was shepherding the church at Ephesus, we deemed it necessary to study Ephesians so we could see our position as being in Christ, who we are in Him. We've been looking at that glorious reality of what we are to do and our mission and how that is lived out in Ephesus and the surrounding areas and how we're to live that out here in Rome, Georgia and among the nations. We have discovered this glorious truth of our position being in Christ is central, absolutely central to what Paul is saying to these Ephesians. And I would argue it's no different today. I would argue more than us figuring out what we're supposed to do is you and I getting who we are in Christ. And you've heard me say it for several weeks. Who we are dictates what we do. We don't jump into doing before we understand who we are. Who you are in Christ, who we are in Christ is central. 169 times Paul uses this language in his letters to define who we are. 33 in the book of Ephesians in the first three chapters. It's big. It's big. Who we are determines what we do. So Ephesians is going to give us plenty to engage in personally and corporately. But we are still digging into the glories of what it means for us to be in Christ. So let's not hurry up with that. That's why I said that's just... Take one to seven in two weeks. In our text today, we're going to see the contrast of who we were in our trespasses and sins contrasted with what we are in Christ. This week, we're not going to unpack the full details of that yet. We'll do that next week. This week, I want to use this passage. And by the way, this is not how you're supposed to do preaching. Unless you intend to come back and fix it the next week, which is what we're going to do. So I'm going to use this passage as a springboard to help encourage us, you and I together, to continued action for the sake of the gospel based on who we are. I said to the men this morning as we were meeting, I never, ever, ever want us to sacrifice who we are for the sake of being something we're not. I want us to be a people who hear and obey. Not a people who have a slick strategy and a really cool business plan. I want us to be people who for the glory of God, Build the church, both local and global, by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to see from this text a little bit about what we are to do because of who we are for the sake of the gospel. We just came off of Pan, and you guys did yourself proud. Whether you worked Pan or didn't work Pan, that's not the point. The point is, that was just a microcosm of what it is to be in this body. I don't know if you figured this out yet or not, but it's hard to come here and hide. If you make it through membership class, chances are you figured out that you have. if you're going to be part of this body, there's something to do. 
And Pam was just a, an outward expression of all the things that you do unseen. Whether it be showing up and filling communion cups, or setting up chairs, or greeting, or leading a radical life group, or attending a radical life group. Whatever it happens to be, we do ourselves proud in serving the Lord. And the work in pulling off things like pan and Sunday mornings and radical life groups and, and orphan ministry and, and all kinds of things that happen, buddy break and, and radical kids through the life of this church is the fruit of people pouring into one another, discipleship, countless hours of preparation and teaching and discipleship and radical life group time and all kinds of investments of time, emotion and energy. Three Rivers, you're a fantastic body. You're a fantastic body. But what's really encouraging is that this fellowship is known on the field for what you do and how you pull off being in Christ. But Three Rivers, the work is not done. Work's not done. We face this reality of being in the rebellion against the rebellion. The war's not over. Our enemy dealt a grievous blow in the garden and that brought death and it brought destruction to created order and to man as God's image bearers. Jesus' work as the ultimate missionary to come, take on flesh, display His glory, live perfectly, die, rise, and provide atonement and justification has set in motion the rebellion against the rebellion. And the mission continues today until all peoples have representatives in the kingdom. Our mission is not done. So we can't get comfortable We can't set up shop and start being like everything that hasn't been effective in this context. We must continually be radical followers of Christ who are producing other radical followers of Christ to build the church local and global and make Jesus big. Our mission is to make disciples of all nations. But what work lies before us? And taking on this mission. We're going to get to Ephesians 2. Just hang tight, okay? What are some things that lie in front of us in taking this mission on? Point number one. We're in a war between the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. And this war is for the souls of people. We're in a war between the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. And this war is for the souls of Of people. Three kinds of people. Free. Captors. And captives. There are the free. Captors and captives. Those who are free are those of us who have had our eyes opened. We've been liberated from the bondage of slavery to sin. We see and savor Christ. And we walk about in the domain of Christ. And we live as people set free from sin to belong to Jesus. There are captives. We're going to look at a couple of passages. Actually three passages of scripture that describe a captive. People who are held in bondage to sin. 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6. to Their eyes are blinded. They can't see. They don't understand. Although they see, they don't perceive. They don't understand. And they're captive to, to ideas and structures and systems that hold back worship from Christ and living lives that matter. And then there are captors. There are those who willingly, intentionally deceive and keep people captive and blind in their agents of the evil one, false prophets who claim to speak spiritual truths and the active rebellion against the kingdom of God. There's free captors and captives. Read Colossians 2.8 with me very quickly. Georgia Electric Power Company. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 2.8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one person, a captor, takes you captive. Make sure that no captor takes you captive. 
by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of this world, not according to Christ. Now, first of all, Paul here is not downing the discipline of philosophy. He is rejecting philosophy that is built on elemental spirits of this world that inform the human traditions of fallen man that's not built on Christ. Meaning, there are spiritual realities that inform human traditions that inform a godless philosophy that takes people captive. And he says, don't be a captive to that because there are captors who preach and teach all kinds of ideas that keep people in a captive state. See to it that you don't be that. So there are captors, there are captives, and then there are those who see to it that they are not taken captive by the elemental spirits and human traditions of this world system that are set up against Christ. So our work, part of our work, is to engage in a war of ideas and truths that liberate people from lies. We're in a war between the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness, and this war is for the souls of people. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Paul speaks here about this work that we have, this ministry that we are to engage in. When he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. He's going to say this in Ephesians later. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This isn't a war against systems and individuals. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, some people stop there and start defining strongholds as bad habits. Jesus wants to liberate you from your bad habit. It's not what a stronghold is. He defines stronghold in the next verse. Verse 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What's a stronghold? It's an idea that keeps people away from Jesus. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's Jesus. And part of our war is a war of ideas that highlight and exalt Jesus Christ as the source and means of all wisdom. So we are to take captive lies that entrap people and keep them away from Jesus and everything associated with following Christ. Jonathan just said this this morning. It's not my notes. I want to be super careful here that you don't hear this the wrong way because we're talking about this war of ideas that we fight if you pass by Turner McCall Boulevard and Martha Berry at the intersection, there's a lady who stands there and she holds a sign quietly, says nothing, hurts no one. And you know what her little sign says? You know the lady I'm talking about. And how many of us pass by there and see she's not obtrusive. She doesn't get in anybody's way. She just simply states a truth. And how many of us find that very uncomfortable? Yet we have no problem wearing pink to fight breast cancer and raise awareness for breast cancer. There's nothing wrong with raising awareness for breast cancer. We should. It's a good fight. But why is it we're troubled about stomping out murder? Why do we see a lady who's doing nothing to get in anybody's way and it makes us a little uncomfortable? But we see people seeking to stomp out breast cancer and we're like, yay! Which one is more deadly? You know the answer to the question. One is murder. And we even want to debate whether or not you should have the right to kill. Right? This is a war of ideas. Let's stomp out breast cancer, but it's okay to kill your baby. Do you feel that? 
Why is it we're uncomfortable with the lady holding her sign? Why? Because there's a war of ideas. There's a philosophy that's not according to Christ and it holds people captive. And part of our job is to liberate people through the powerful gospel to see and savor, think like, act like Jesus. And all of us are still in this war and the battle rages in our own minds and hearts, does it not? By all means, wear pink and raise awareness for breast cancer. But by all means, do not be uncomfortable with fighting for the unborn. Do you hear that? Why? Because there are ideas and philosophies that are not according to Christ and they will pillage our worldview if we do not begin to fight this war of ideas in the heavenly places and take thought, take captive every thought to obey Christ. You may not like someone's strategy, but dare not judge them for speaking truth in a way that doesn't get in anyone's face. The lady's got more guts than most of us sitting in this room. 2 Timothy 2, 22-26 Paul says to young Timothy here in his last will and testament, so flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. But the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having, after being captured by him to do his will. Did you catch that? Paul says, correct these. And by the way, he's speaking to the church. To be gentle in correcting those who your, who are your opponents on the inside. God may grant them repentance leading to life and to escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. Does that make you a little nervous? It should. Why? Because the war of ideas is still raging with us. We've been set free and yet we are still in a war of ideas, the philosophies of Christ, a worldview built on the foundation of Christ, that the wisdom and knowledge of God are found in Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That versus all the other ideas floating around that seek to take us captive. Paul tells us there are people who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. They're free. They're captors and they're captives. Those who are captive are captive because they're born into the rebellion as an active participant in the rebellion. And the values of the rebellion are lived out naturally in their desires and their actions. Captives believe the lies of the kingdom of darkness and actively propagate those lies into systems and cultural norms. Listen to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Wow. This is why I got hung there. Is we're going to unpack the fullness of verse 1 to 7 next week. But did you hear the description of the lies and systems of belief set up against the knowledge of Christ? Did you hear how entrenched and how dark? You were dead. You were dead. Not partly alive. 
Not mildly good. Not some good thoughts and some bad thoughts. So you're kind of halfway in between. You were dead. 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 So we're talking about a system. Ideas that breed death and destruction and are in the very nature of themselves dead. They produce no life. Walking in deadness in which you once walked. Walking in deadness. The, The biblical idea of walking when it says in which you once walked is the idea of living in. It is the system of your thinking. It's the foundation and framework off of which you make all the decisions of life. You were once dead and you walked in that deadness. Everything you did was constructed on ideas that were dead by their very nature. Wow. And then he takes it further. Following the course of this world. Meaning, apart from Christ, people are following a dead course according to a world system, which we studied First John a couple of years ago, which is Satan's system of lies opposed to the gospel. Philosophies built on spiritual realities that are apart from Christ and they inform human traditions. You're dead, you're walking in those, and you live your life and your framework of thinking is built on dead things. Do you see why we're in a war for ideas and we're in a war for the souls of people? Because the very framework of their decision making is dead and produces death and destruction and rebellion against the kingdom of light. But he goes further. He's not done there. He says, following the prince of the power of the air. Meaning, those who are dead, walking in deadness, following the course of this world, are actively following Satan and his hordes of demons, the captors, the false prophets, the teachings that set themselves up against the knowledge of Christ, who produce strongholds, ideas contrary to the gospel. And he's not done. And he goes on and says, living according to the passions of the flesh. In other words, they are victims of their own fleshly desires. Do not trust your heart. If you live according to fallen passions in your fallen nature, you are following a course of death. Me too. Living according to passions of the flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Being pulled around by a fallen nature that's dead and dragging us into deadness. Wow. And we're by nature children of wrath. Do you feel the battle we're in? Do you feel the war that your own mind is fighting? Maybe even now? We're in a war. And this war of ideas is a war we're fighting for the souls of representatives from all nations. This is why the gospel advances in much difficulty. Because it is confronting ideas contrary to it. This is why the gospel, when it goes into the unreached dark places of the globe, there is conflict. Why? Because the idea of Christ is contrary to everything else. Jesus defines who God is. Jesus defines who man is. Jesus defines what truth is. And all of those ideas are contrary. And the world system has captives. And we are seeking their release. Hear this. First, we need to understand that our work lies not so much in dealing with systems, but in rescuing individuals from the domain of darkness. Our work lies in rescuing people from the domain of darkness. How do we do that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that there is a way that is life, not death. There is a God who tells us who you are and who He is. There is a God, Jesus, who fixed the problem between you and He. 
And He made a way to be reconciled to Him and fix you and put a new spirit in you, put a new heart in you and transform you, give you a new set of precepts, a new ideal off of which to live that is full of life, not death. So we understand our work lies not so much in dealing with systems, but in rescuing individuals from the domain of darkness. Second, because we seek to rescue people from the domain of darkness, we do have to grope around in dark and broken systems that can be frustrating to deal with. This is the call for us as a church to recognize, although we are seeking to rescue people from the domain of darkness, it requires us to get in broke systems and work in a frustrating manner because they are broken. This is why ministry is hard. You you tracking with that? This is why ministry is difficult, because we are called to rescue people from the domain of darkness. But in order to do that, you have to go into the broken systems of the world to proclaim the gospel. And those broken systems are hard to work in, because they're constructed on systems that are built not according to Christ. And we have eyes that see, and we understand, and we know, and they're blind. And there's constant friction and tension on, we. Jesus wants it done like this. I don't care. I don't believe in Jesus. What do we do? What do you do? You have to keep pounding. You have to keep working. You have to keep engaging. You have to keep proclaiming. So we're seeking to rescue individuals. But in seeking to rescue individuals from the domain of darkness, you have to grope around and work in dark and broken systems that are frustrating to deal with. If you've been over to our country, you know what that's like. If you've tried to work in Department of Family and Children's Services to adopt a child, you know what it's like to work in a broken system. And to grope around in the darkness with people who are blind to try to work and bring the gospel to bear. But inside that system, there are individuals that need to be rescued. Third, as citizens of the kingdom, we can begin to create new systems that are constructed on the values of the kingdom. As citizens of the kingdom, we can begin to create new systems that are constructed on the values of the kingdom. This takes spirit-gifted entrepreneurs that can create in that domain of society a new structure to operate in as members of the kingdom of God. Spirit-gifted people to create new systems. That's where we are. We're a church that's engaging. We're a church that is seeking to rescue individuals, but we're recognizing the systems are broken. And we're at that phase now where we need the Lord to give us solutions to create kingdom-minded systems that work in the kingdom of God and fight against the kingdom of darkness. That requires spirit-gifted entrepreneurs, not pastors. Not children's ministers or youth ministers, but gifted business people. Gifted everybody that create new systems. Fourth, we must realize that the Lord's chosen instrument to any domain of society may be one of the domain's own members. And it will take us rescuing them by the gospel in order for them to be saved and discover they're an Ephesians 2.10 instrument to create a new system. Wouldn't it be awesome if the challenge to the foster problem will be a adopted child that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, sees and fixes and repairs what we couldn't see fix and repair? But in order for that to take place, they must be rescued. They must be rescued. All this starts with rescuing men and women from captivity to the rebellion by the powerful gospel. I say this to you because we are right in the middle of one of the deepest, darkest strongholds on the face of the planet. We are. We are. We just are. If you try to live the gospel and you preach the gospel in this place, it is a desperately difficult place to do it, is it not? Rome, Georgia is no easy place to do gospel ministry. 
There are spiritual battles. We fight with ideas and beliefs that are contrary to the gospel, even inside the Christian subculture of Roman Floyd County. Are there not? And our souls find the conflict and we're constantly bombarded and we're seeking to fight against and make decisions that look like Jesus. But so much of what we believe and think keep us from acting in faith. And we do what only we can do in our strength and it wears us out. And pastors quit. Ministry people quit. They go to other places that are easier. What's Rome, Georgia for you? We're in a war. And we're in a war for the souls of men who are dead. And the only thing that will bring them to life is not a slick business model, not a pretty gathering, but the powerful gospel preached by the community of the kingdom of God. Point number two. You're like, good Lord, that was just point number one. Yes. Now you know why we're not just... If you engage in ministry... If you engage in gospel work, you recognize that individuals are captive and that this work takes place at that level. Listen, it's going to require all of us engaging in the war, not simply showing up on Sunday morning. We can't neglect showing up on Sunday morning. There's a Hebrews 10.25 to address that. But we must engage And we must speak to individuals the truth of the gospel to rescue them from the kingdom of darkness by the powerful gospel. Point number two. The beliefs and values of the kingdom of God stand opposed to the beliefs and values of the rebellion. The domain of darkness. The world system. God's values and His kingdom are opposed to the values of a world system. The kingdom of darkness. The rebellion against Jesus Christ. The problem is that from the fall of mankind... From the fall on, mankind has been captive to a system of beliefs and values that are opposed to God's truth. Our passage, as we've just briefly looked at verse 1 to 3, is an example of this. We're told in that text that people who are not in Christ are dead due to being in sin, and therefore they follow Satan as their leader. You don't think that Our culture stands opposed to the gospel. Try conversing with a non-Christian about their status of being a follower of Satan. You will run into a buzz saw. Chances are that possibly hearing things like this offends some of our own sensibilities. If that's the case, how deep is the rebellion ingrained when even freed citizens of the kingdom find truths of the kingdom offensive? With our discomfort about the Bible's truth claims comes a temptation to concede things, to give up things that we shouldn't give up. Here's C.S. Lewis in a quote from God in the Dock. Great read if you haven't read it. And I, it's in the footnote, Grand Rapids. You get Erdman's publishing, God in the Dock. Listen to what Lewis says. As Christians, we're tempted to make unnecessary concessions to those outside the faith. We must show our Christian colors if we are to be true to Jesus Christ. We cannot remain silent and concede everything away. Exactly. When life confronts death, we don't give up on life because it's uncomfortable. We can't. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to be strategic. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to be winsome. But we don't give away truth because what's at stake is life and death. We're in a war. Let me give you just a few places where the battle of ideas is taking place. Mark 10.6, Jesus taught that God created humans, male and female. Darwin, Marx, Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche... Richard Rorty, Huxley, and other disciples on the other side, they insist that humankind is a product of chance, spontaneous generation, and evolution. A magazine called Free Inquiry in uh, the winter of 2001-2002, page 39, Matthew D'Agostino says, We're not absolutely sure what life looked like once the process was fully underway. Something like algae. The biologists suggest a foamy blue-green pond scum. Who is man? The Bible says an image bearer of God, male and female. Nietzsche? Ponscom. 
If we define who we are based on an atheistic worldview, life is meaningless. Kill away. If life's not what we consider to be quality, take it. But if we're image bearers, male and female, male and female create an image of God, then life has infinite value. And suffering doesn't define whether or not it should be cut short or not. Does it? Jesus claims in John 10.30 that He and the Father are one. But John Dewey, father of the Dewey Decimal System, Richard Rorty, again Nietzsche, their followers, dead and still alive, propagating the lie, say that there is no eternal Father and that faith in God is a mark of weakness or insanity and that persons and cultures create their own reality and their own morality. So truth is either given to us by an eternal God or we make it up. Which one is it? Mark 12, 30-31. Jesus says we should love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strengthen our neighbors as ourselves. Marx and Lenin suggest and assert that there is no God and that we must eliminate the conventional, middle-class, conservative, what they call the bourgeois, by violence if necessary. We're supposed to love our neighbors, even love our enemies and our neighbors as ourselves because we love God in like manner. They say, no, kill them if they're opposed to you. Jesus tells us in John eleven twenty five that he's the resurrection and the life. But Michael Foucault and other disciples of his insist that there is no resurrection, that life itself is an accident of nature. John 14, Jesus promises he is preparing a place in his kingdom for those who love him. Again, some of the same people I've mentioned, their disciples believe that religion is an illusion and it's an opiate of the masses. You understand we're in a war of ideas and we're seeking to rescue the souls of men from these ideas that inform culture and systems? Jesus teaches to give Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That is, give the government what's theirs and God the things that are God's. Humanists and naturalistic systems of thinking believe nothing belongs to God because there is no God to whom it belongs. Therefore, we should get all we can, save all we can, and get as comfortable as we can because this life is all that there is. Is your money plan built on a humanistic, atheistic worldview or God's? You feel the war? You feel it? Jesus teaches that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil in John 3.19. Richard Dawkins believes that the universe we observe has precisely the priorities we should expect if there's no bottom or no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Wow. Well, okay. Why not just end it now? So, you see the war of ideas? You feel it? Dead systems walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working the sons of disobedience. This is the war we're engaged in. And the answer comes in Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's true or it's not. And if it's true, you know what? We have no option but to seek Christ, obey Him, and live His culture out among this culture of deadness and seek to rescue men from death to life. So, what can we do to prepare for this battle? Gosh, i got to hurry. Dang, I didn't realize what time it is. I'm sorry. Here we go. What do we do? What are some things we can do to stay in the battle, to keep the mission front and center for the glory of God, build the church local and global, being and producing radical followers of Christ? What are some ways we can look like that plugged in, abiding in Christ, branch in the vine, radical followers of Christ? Well, that's point number three. Develop your ability to engage in the rebellion against the rebellion. We have to develop our ability to engage. And I give you some ways to do that. A. Don't read your Bible, study it. We have to become people who not just read our Bibles, but we study it and we seek to make sense of the things that are there. Majority of Christian students I see coming through my classes have never read their Bibles through. 
Much less studied the difficult passages. Christians, if we're going to engage in a world of ideas that are contrary to the ideas here, we have to know the ideas here. It is not appropriate for Christians to not know how God thinks. If it's in the Bible, God meant us to understand it. That's why He gave it. Don't just read your Bible, study your Bible. If you will show up on Sundays, we will disciple you in that. If you've been here long enough, you know that. If you will be here, you will be prepared. And you can walk away knowing how to study. Don't just read them, study them. B. Read and digest other viewpoints on key issues. Psychology, sociology, politics, education, biology. Read and digest other viewpoints. When you do that, you start realizing with a critical eye that the Christian worldview is far superior to theirs. Think through the discipline of psychology. If you've been to college and you took a psychology class at a secular university, you realize very quickly that for them there's a contradiction even in their discipline And the idea of humanity. Psychology, the study of the soul. Modern psychology is built on an atheistic worldview that says you don't have a soul. How can you study the soul you don't believe is there? You don't. You treat psychology as though it were biology. And then what do you do? You fix it with chemicals. Not salvation. There's a problem there, don't you think? What if I do have a soul? How do you treat it? I don't know. Try the manual. Now, are, are we broken? Yes. Do we need sometimes medical fixes? Yes. But I need a discerning, spirit-filled individual to know the difference between a broken soul and a broken body. Because they're both in play. And we need discerning believers who can tell the difference between the two. Does that make sense? We live in an idea, in a world where we need to know opposing viewpoints and be well equipped to bring the answer to bear. So you know what that means? You're going to have to get out of your comfort zone and read some stuff that's not devotional. The thing I don't enjoy most is reading people that I'm opposed to. Because I get angry. And as I get angry, I throw things. And as I throw things, I find it doesn't work. So I have to throw something else. And then I get upset. And then I start tweeting things. And then I have to erase the tweet. You have to read other stuff. See, put yourself in difficult and challenging situations. Don't go for comfort. Put yourself in difficult and challenging situations. Meaning, if God's put a passion in your heart for a domain of society that's broken, jump in. Just go. You're going to get chewed up. You're going to get spit out. It's going to be uncomfortable. But put yourself in difficult and challenging situations. Lean on the manual. Trust Holy Spirit. Lean on the body. And you'll grow as an individual that can engage our culture. Stretch your intellectual boundaries. Become a better thinker. You want to learn to do that? Just go listen to Robbie Zacharias. And, and, and rewind and listen again. Be a better thinker. But don't abandon the truth or be taken captive with lies. Keep the Scripture front and center. View all things through the lens of Scripture, but stretch your intellectual boundaries. This will come as you challenge yourself with other viewpoints in difficult situations. E, engage in domain society as an analyzer of the culture and as salt and light for the culture. F, be a diligent manager of your time and portion it out to what matters most. What are some of our goals in fighting this rebellion and being in the rebellion against the rebellion? What are some of our goals? A, be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Be a faithful follower of Jesus. Don't just be a pragmatic person looking for things that work. Be a faithful follower of Christ. Jesus will call you to things that do not make sense and do not work in the eyes of men. Be a faithful follower of Christ.
Jesus will not ask, was your strategy good? The, an- the question will be, were you faithful? Did you obey? I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. Enter the joy of your master. Be a faithful follower of Christ. B, strive to know what you believe and why. The day for ignorant Christians is over. It is not efficient, nor sufficient, nor honoring to Jesus to not know. C, engage in the rebellion against the rebellion as Jesus taught. And hear His words, be shrewd as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. Without compromise... And without being able to be blamed for wrong, engage in the culture. How do you engage? Obey the Holy Spirit as He speaks to you and leads your community, your radical life group, your church. D, be a faithful ambassador of Jesus above all things. Don't strive for success. Hear this and hear this carefully. Do not strive for success. Strive to be a person of biblical character and integrity that's willing to die for the sake of the gospel. Success is a mirage. Faithfulness is the target that you can hit. Was Jesus successful? Not according to our world. He died. Had a few followers. How successful is that? Well, we have open eyes. Very successful. He was faithful to the Father. He obeyed. And He will receive the reward of His suffering. Be a faithful ambassador of Christ. And finally, be a worshiper of Jesus in all things everywhere. Be a worshiper of Jesus in all things everywhere. We want to see people come and worship Jesus with us. Because they're in a dead system that leads to death. We're in life and we want them to be in life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as people who are in Christ, you would continue to open our eyes to see the truth of Jesus Christ and the battle that we are engaged in. I pray, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work of grace among your people to cause us To find our greatest identity in you. Not what people think of us. Not if we're successful, but in you. Completely in you. Pleasing you. Loved by you. And loving you. Help us to find our identity in you. And I do pray that you would cause that to work itself out. Into salt and light. People laboring away for the gospel seeking the rescue of men and women from the domain of darkness. God, we pray that in that you would transform our world here and there. Jesus, I pray that you would mobilize workers. Would you raise up laborers for the harvest? For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Would you pull that off, Lord Jesus? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fight against lies in our own soul. And you would tear down strongholds of unbelief and cause us to see and savor Christ and obey faithfully. Would you accomplish some of that even in this room now? Would you bring from your people worship? And would you send us out of here to be faithful worshipers in word and deed?